We are live in the Brigino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, Babe Ruth's Called Shot, The Myth and Mystery of Baseball's Greatest Home Run, the publisher, Lions Press, the author, Ed Sherman. Uh, for those of you who may not know, or those listening on the podcast, Ed is a longtime writer for the Chicago Tribune, and he reports on sports media for his highly acclaimed website, ShermanReport.com. So please join me as we welcome to the clubhouse, Ed Sherman. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you, Ed. This is an awesome story. It really is. Uh, thank you. Thank you. i got to try and build one in Chicago now. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe so. Franchise it. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, one of my uh, other cities I can actually go to, you know, so maybe we'll do that. <laughs> uh, so I think a good place to start is, because some people have actually asked me this, uh, what brought you to want want to write a book about this home run yeah, from 1932? Yeah, a lot of people, you know, that's kind of, that's a great place to start, and it's a good story, actually. I, at first, I, I've always been interested in baseball history. I mean, I look at this place here, and I'm like, wow, all the, I love the throwback, you know, the, t, uh, the, the T-shirts, and uh, and I read a lot of baseball history, and uh, like I'm sure people here in the store do, because it's, you know, sometimes it's a lot better than what you see today. It's a lot more interesting. Uh, so I wanted to write a sports history type book. And in 2008, um, the Cubs were in, you know, actually were decent for, you know, once for a while, for a brief moment, and they were going to go and they were winning. They were actually, I think they had the best record in the National League that year, and they were about to go and play the uh, postseason, Dodgers in the postseason. And we were looking to, the Tribune was looking to do some, you know, stock up on some, thinking, hey, this is going to be a good run here, and we're going to we're going to need all sorts of Cubs history. World Series type, you know, lore. This is going to be finally going to be it. And so I happened to be in, was going to Washington for something else, and I had seen that uh, Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens was at the game. He was at the called shot. He was 12 years old at the time. He lived in Chicago, and I had seen him quoted about it. And so, and I, so you know, I figured I, I picked up the phone and I figured, well, maybe I'll try and do a story on Justice Stevens being at the called shot for this, you know great Cubs run we're anticipating here in October. And you pick up the phone and I actually got through to his office and they got his assistant. And it's not like you just generally just call, <laughs> pick up the phone and say, you know, I'm going to stop by to a Supreme Court justice, you know, uh, you know, you know, what time do you want me to come over, you know, that kind of thing. And I tried to explain to the, I wrote about this in the book, that's kind of my first part of the book. And I wrote about, uh, and I explained to her what I was doing and she was like, what? You want to do, you want to come to the Supreme Court justice and talk baseball with them. Yeah, well, <laughs> essentially, yes. And she was really dismissive. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, you know, he, first of all, he doesn't give any, he didn't give any interviews. He didn't talk about the, any of his cases or anything like that, unlike some of the other ones that you see. And she was very dismissive. She said, the justice is very busy. You know, I, I, would, I wouldn't anticipate that, uh, that uh, anything will come with this, but I will pass along the message to him. Literally the next day, I got a phone call from her you have an appointment with Justice Stevens <laughs> at such and such a day. Of course, he wanted to talk about it, you know, because he was very proud of being in that in, in part of that history. And you know, with eighty, what that time it was, 
almost 80 years, uh, was 76 years removed from, not too many people were around who remembered that moment, let alone a sitting Supreme Court justice. So I went to his chambers, and he was very friendly and very nice. And, but, you know, and then you saw what it meant to him. He had a little sports corner in his office, and he had one of those paintings of the called shot in his office, and he had the uh, a scorecard of the game. So he was... Uh, uh, so that's kind of where it began, but let me just tell you the postscript of it. So for me, you know, I was like, did he did he point? Did he did you you saw it? He was he was sitting on the third base side, so he had a really good view. Did he point? You know, and he's twelve years old. What do you remember when you're twelve years old, right? And he said, you know, he talked a little bit. You know, he set up the scene, and and he said he couldn't. He said he definitely made a gesture, but he couldn't speak of his motivation. You know, like justice, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so here's the rest. Of, here's the rest of the story. So now, in 2010, 60 Minutes, Scott Pelley does an interview with him, and, and you know, and this is like his exit interview. He's leaving the court after 35 years or whatever it was, um, and they take him the final scene. They take him to Wrigley Field, and he goes. They sit him down in the stands. You were at this famous called shot game. What's your verdict? Did he point? And he goes, yes, he pointed. And I'm like, and he says again, that's your verdict? That's my verdict. And so I'm like thinking, okay, to me, he couldn't speak of his motivation. But on national TV, with Scott <laughs> Kelly, he wasn't going to say I couldn't speak of his motivation. Of course he pointed. Right? I mean, to me, it really, it really struck me that even a Supreme Court justice is like TV just totally acts you know, like different on TV than in, than in person. So that kind of got me rolling. And, the, the, but, and that story never ran. In the Tribune, because the Cubs lost in three games to the Dodgers, <laughs> and we never even, you know, again, they, they haven't done anything since. Um, but it kind of got me intrigued, and the, so I started reading them. Well, maybe there's something. I knew having a Supreme Court justice would be a kind of a good entree to, you know, it kind of brings it into the present, you know. And uh, the more I started looking into it, the more I got, you know, I, I just started Googling. You know, literally, my best friend should be Ed. It should be the book is written by Ed Sherman and Google because you just start Googling stuff. And I started reading about the media. I found this really great media, really long media thing about, and I'm a media guy, so obviously I was interested about who, what they wrote and what they didn't write. And, and that's, part of, that's part of the book. And then I started reading about what Ruth said. I thought, well, you know, and didn't say. And, uh, and then I knew about these videos that existed, and we'll, we could talk about that at some point. So that's kind of... But my, my entree to the book was really that interview with uh, with Justice Stevens, and that was a really memorable day, uh, you know, to, to be in a Supreme Court justice chambers talking baseball. And of course, they left. They, you know, he wanted to talk because he was very, very proud of being in that moment. Well, if uh, actually, if we could pick up on something that you said about the sports writers of the day. In the book, you talk about Grantland Rice, the, right. the, the legendary Grantland Rice. Well, and it was just an unbelievable press box. If you think about the people, Grantland Rice, the press box included Grantland Rice, Damon Runyon, Ring Lardner, uh, Shirley Povich, a young Red Smith who was working in St. Louis at the time, Paul Gallico, I don't know if you guys know, who wrote the Poseidon Adventure, you know, <laughs> I mean, and another, there's another, I mean, the, an incredible press back, but Grantlin Rice was the king. He was the he was the ESPN of well, one man <laughs> ESPN of that era because he uh, he was everyone wrote about uh, everyone read his columns. He, and he were and he was a very prolific writer. 
And the interesting part of the media coverage, again, were this kind of, well, if he called his shot, you would think all the media people would write it, right, the next day. But he was one of the people who, he didn't write anything about it the next day. He wrote about the great scene that occurred, but he didn't mention anything about a called shot. A few writers did write about it, more than just one, as people think. The one that's, that's generally credited with the, coming up with the term called shot was a baseball writer named Joe Williams from New York. I can't remember the exact newspaper. And it, and it said in the headline, called his shot. And that's kind of where it, it originated. So Gretman Rice does not write anything the next day, but the following day, he writes this great flirt, you know, Babe Ruth and, uh, you know, pointing and doing all his, uh, you know, like a, a, a duelist and, a, you know, I mean, all his colorful prose. So why did he wait a day? Was he trying to, was he trying to uh, catch up? Did he realize, hey, he missed something? I don't want to miss a good story because... Because back then, you know, I mean, they, they weren't beholden to the facts. I mean, they loved, you know, there was a lot of embellishment, and it was you have to, and you have to remember, it was the depression. So they were people wanted to feel good about, you know, the, they wanted bigger than life type stories. You know, it kind of lift them out of their uh, very. It was, 1932 was pretty much the height of the depression, and so, so did he, you know, so was he trying to catch up or? Back then, also the conventional rules of journalism didn't exist. They sometimes the columnists didn't save their do their s- stories the, the following day. They'd save it for another day. Maybe they had a larger press run. You know, he was going to hit more papers or whatever. So that, but that whole chapter in the book was really, I think, a pretty interesting part about who did, who wrote what, who didn't write. And the thing that we that I emphasized back then, the writers didn't go down to the locker room after the game, and. And uh, so they didn't really talk to Ruth. So nobody would, you know, talk about the situation. So that added to the kind of the whole mystery of it. And it could have been, I found an, an, a, a one line in a Sporting News article, and this is where the whole thing might have originated from, was there was a wire service writer, blinking out in his name, it doesn't really matter, who yelled out during this whole big scene, and we'll talk about the scene, who yelled out, he's calling his shot. Now, keep in mind, that it was a big, you know, there's a lot of writers. So maybe the writers who heard that wrote about it. Hey, hey that's a great idea. Yeah, he's calling his shot. That's a great story. Because only a few writers wrote about it. Not everyone uh, wrote about it. So maybe this whole thing might have originated from that guy yelling out, he's calling his shot, and these guys who heard him saying, yeah, you know, and maybe Grantland Rice was somewhere else and he didn't hear it. And uh, so that's kind of the media is a really a big part of the whole thing, the whole mystery of the whole story. Actually, we probably should have started this way, but instead, set the scene. Yeah. Okay, here's the scene. Uh, It's game three of the World Series in Wrigley Field. The Yankees are up two games to nothing. There was a lot of bad blood between the Yankees and the Cubs that year. The Cubs had, the Yankees had a, uh, in 27, they had a shortstop named Mark Koenig, who was on that Murderer's Row team, who was kind of the weakest link in the Murderer's Row, but he was a good fielding shortstop. And by 29 or 30, he had some eye issues, and he was basically out of baseball in 32. He was kind of making a comeback, and the Cubs needed a shortstop at the end of the year, and they picked him up in August, and then and the Cubs were kind of struggling. He comes in, he gets a home run in his like second game, that wins a game for them, and they go on a 14-game winning streak, and he hits 350 the rest of the season, helped them win the pennant. And, uh, and the Cubs, though... Didn't, they only awarded him a half world, half world series share, 
maybe even less than that. Um, and the Yankees thought that the Cubs were being cheap. And Ruth, especially, was using that as kind of, you know, called them cheapskates. So, like, right from the beginning, game one, they're like, you know, they're, they're taunting each other. He's calling them cheap sta- cheapskates, and they're calling them a big fat whatever, and it's sure a lot worse. <laughs> and so the Yankees win the first two games. They come to, they come to and, and it's now that it, there's a lot of bad blood. So Ruth comes now to Chicago, and they're meeting at the train station, and people are yelling, and someone spit on his wife that got him upset. You know, so now there's a lot of stuff that's boiling, simmering here. So now in the first inning, you know, he comes to the ballpark, and they put on, him and Garrett put on an epic show in batting practice. I mean, the wind was kind of blowing out, and they're just, and they said it was just an unbelievable show. And Ruth, you know, and Garrett said, Ruth, you know, Ruth's going to could hit three today. And he almost did. So in the first <laughs> inning, in the first inning, he comes up. Before they even get it out, Ruth hits a three-run homer. So the Yankees are up. So already, it doesn't even get kind of ignored that Ruth already hit a three-run homer in the first <laughs> inning in that game. So now it's three to nothing. Now the Cubs are just... Okay, now it looks like this thing's going to be over in three games. The World Series is going to be over in three games, not four. Uh, but the Cubs rallied in the in the fourth inning, and they tied the game with four four. So now the Cubs finally have some momentum, and it's and Ruth comes up, and Ruth helped that inning because he made you know he was very heavy and overweight, couldn't move as well, and uh, he made a misplay in the outfield, and they got on him for that. So now he comes up with one out in the fifth, nobody on base. Contrary to what he wrote in his own autobiography that he had all sorts of factors and about what happened. Nobody on base. And the place starts going crazy. You know, mind you, this is the fifth inning of a game. It's not the ninth inning. It's not, you know, Mariano Rivera facing Babe Ruth to close out a game. You know, it's the fifth inning of a 4-4 game. Place is going crazy. Because now the Cubs finally have the momentum for the first time in the series. Cubs players are out on the field taunting taunting them. Yelling things, all sorts of obscenities and things that you couldn't even... It was so bad that Landis, Judge Landis, who was at the game, threatened the next game. Anyone who engaged in any trash talking, I suppose, for lack of a better would be fined $500, which is a huge fine back in those days. I mean, can you imagine the scene today where the opposing team would be out on the field taunting and the umpires didn't chase? So that's where it kind of gets in. So when you see these gestures... You know, is he gesturing them to get back in the dugout? That's one of the big gesture. Or is he pointing to center field? And we can kind of get into the interpretation. But the bottom line was, regardless of what you think happened or didn't happen, there's no mistaking that this was the most unique moment in baseball history. There was never another at-bat like this in baseball history when you consider it was a World Series game, the magnitude of who it involved, Babe Ruth, and the situation. And how does he respond? He's being definitely being challenged. He's definitely responding, definitely firing it right back at them. And how does he respond? Well, if he strikes out there, he hits a little weak pop-up, you know, maybe it's a different World Series. But Babe Ruth in that situation, not only does he just hit a home run, it wasn't just a cheap wind-blown home run in Wrigley Field. He hit the ball 490 feet, almost to where the, the, the scoreboard would be, past the scoreboard where the scoreboard is today. And it effectively ends that World Series. The Cubs go, Cubs are done. Lou Gehrig hits the next pitch from Charlie Root for a home run. So even at, regardless of whether or not you saw that situation, to been at a World, imagine being at a World Series game and see Ruth and Gehrig hit back homers on back-to-back pitches. And so and he, that home run doesn't get enough credit for Cubs won. The Yankees won that game really easily, and then they killed them in Game Four. So that, I mean, they just completely blew 
the way down the Cubs, and that was set. And people realized not that so much that what night he called his shot, but they realized how what kind of scene that was, how he was being taunted by all these fans, and how he responded. And they gave him a standing ovation when he came out in the field in the sixth inning because they knew that this was an unbelievable moment. So I think that you know when people say the called shot didn't happen. Well, no, no, no. There, there was maybe he didn't do the William Bendix, you know, arm straight type routine <laughs> that we see in the movies that are kind of it's a comic. But something definitely happened, and it was. And even if you don't believe that, you know, if you say nothing happened, like George Will and people like that, I have them in my book. You know, they make it seem like that Charlie Root, Root was the pitcher was throwing, and Babe Ruth was like a normal at bat, right? It was far from it. It was. I think it's the most unique at bat in baseball history, and I think. A lot of people would agree. Can you talk us through that, Beth? Can you go through the pitching sequence? So, uh, yeah, so the other thing, okay, you've seen, uh, uh, most people have seen the silly two Babe Ruth movies that are really beyond <coughs> comical. And the, and the one, and I did a chapter on how the called shot was done in both those movies, which is beyond comical. But, you know, because they just show him his bat on his shoulder. He's taking two pitches, you know, and he's setting up the pitcher. You know, even Ruth in his own book has it as an 0-2 count. It wasn't an 0-2 count. He took this play, he took uh, he took two pitches. It, it was a I think the first pitch was a strike, then there was two balls. And then and after the second ball, and we can get and get into this a little bit because I saw the video, but after the second ball he's making the famous gesture where he's like this, where his arm is straight. Okay, so this was on a pitch that was you know, wasn't on the pitch prior to that at bat. It was on you know, it was one before and now is he pointing at the dugout or is he pointing at center field? You know, I would say that he's, the way he's gesturing, I would say he's pointing at the dugout. Now, this is what I saw from watching the home video. Then he takes a strike. Okay, but he's not sitting there like, you know, William Bendix, you know, in the, in the movie, you know, just kind of like, you know, taking a strike. He definitely strided, took a stride for whatever reason he didn't swing. But he wasn't, he wasn't, he definitely took, he looked at that pitch. And then he goes... And then Charlie, Gabby Hartman's throwing the ball back, so you can kind of, it's obscuring his arm, but then you can kind of see him cocking his arm, and he has one or two fingers, it's hard to tell. I mean, it's a 1930, you know, home movie from, you know, 1932. But he's kind of like doing this gesture towards the pitcher, you know, towards the pitcher. Now, is he, you know, and it's like as if I'm warning, like if you were like telling your kid, I'm warning you, you know, right? And, uh, and, uh, and I think that's the one that kind of gets obscure that people that that hasn't been shown in the Ken Burns movies and some of the other documentaries about that. And to me, that you know, as he's saying, I've got one pitch left, you know, whatever. He's definitely that gesture to me definitely indicates that he's you know I'm going to do something bad to you. You guys are going to regret getting me upset, <laughs> right? You know, so I think that that kind of suggests, you know, I mean, people ask me, and you're going to will, you know, did he call his shot? It's not black and white. I mean, I don't have a, you know, there's no, and I, and, and, and the video that I watched, you know, wasn't the whole at bat. There might have been other stuff that I, you know, that, the, that, that, you know, that they, it was film was expensive. So he, the guy was constantly turning on and off his camera. So there might have been stuff that I missed, but those seemed to be the two big gestures. And that second gesture to me kind of was like, whoa, I never saw this one before. And that to me kind of suggested that, okay, he might have, might not be straight up pointed to center field, but he definitely was like, hey, you know, better watch it. This next pitch is going a long way. And, it, and here's the other great part about it. It was not a, it was a low and away pitch. He really shouldn't have even, 
swung at it. It was a, it was probably going to be a ball, and uh, and he hit. The, I mean, he basically golfed that thing out of the ballpark. You know, and, he, and Root even said he's the only the only guy who could have hit that pitch like that was Babe Ruth. And these videos that you the two videos. So it's a great story. To me, that was kind of. The, and I knew the videos existed because I had done some. Uh, I had done some stuff uh, reporting when. In the, in the 90s, when ESPN did the Sports Century series, I don't know if you guys remember, when they counted down the famous athletes of the 20th century. And right before they did the Babe Ruth video, they found this um, this home movie, and I remember doing it. So I, I also kind of knew it, had, had known about that. They, did a, they found a home movie that basically had been you know, stored. The guy was at the game, and, and uh, it, it was the only... This thing just kills me every time when I think about it. A guy said, "There's there's two home movies. One the, the one guy who went to the one movie that the ESPN people used. The guy he took a 16 millimeter camera, shot video of Babe Ruth, the called shot. That was the only baseball game he ever attended in his entire life. <laughs> <laughs> right? Okay. So there was two home movies, and 16. Mil- there was another one um, uh, by another uh, guy who worked for R. R. Donnelly and basically borrowed a camera, and the guy would love." To shoot videos, and and they basically shot the video and maybe edited it or whatever and put it in the trunk and uh, took it out for family gatherings among <laughs> you know here's Aunt Susie and here's Sophie uh, running in the yard and here's little Sally and here's Babe Ruth hitting a home run. <laughs> in the World Series game. Basically, that's the way it existed. These people had no idea they were you know they assumed well this is a famous a World Series game they assumed that this footage existed elsewhere so one one guy in Louisville guy his great great grandson in Louisville was telling somebody he had this he realized at the time that no this there's no footage of this moment so he started trying to get it out and he realized it and then the other one took until the 90s the guy who the family you know that again they real you know they someone who knew a little bit about sports saw the it said do you realize what you have here so I went to see, you know, and again, the, the only game he ever went to, and he just happened to have a movie, <laughs> and he shoots one of these greatest moments that, you know, shoots like film of, you know, uh, of this great moment that doesn't exist anywhere else because the newsreels didn't get it or whatever, or, or they, you know, they, nobody saved it for whatever reason. If you look at the newsreels, it's just no, there's no real footage of him doing anything. Um, so I went down. This is one of the highlights. So I uh, I went down to visit the guy in Louisville who had the uh, the home movie, and and I have some of the stills in the book of the home movie, um, and we watched it. We analyzed it, and it was about a minute and a half. And first of all, the thing that was really he had about a minute and a half worth of footage of the game. Again, you know, for what, either he was saving on film, and film is very expensive, or he was turning on and off the camera. I don't know. But he had about a minute and a half. So he had the Cubs, he had the players, uh, the people walking in, uh, into the stadium. He had the players holding this huge American flag during the pregame show. Now you can imagine the players doing that now in the world. You'd have to get a special union dispensation, you know, to have them, you know, do anything like that, right? Holding a flag. Then he had the he had Ruth hitting the home run in the first inning, and it was like, and it was really neat to watch when you think about. Uh, uh, all the footage that you've seen of Ruth, it's all kind of very, there's no context to it. You never really see him in a game situation. It's all kind of newsreel, and he's just kind of hitting a home run, and he's running around the bases, he's doing it with a little waddle. And to see him actually, 
in the context of the game where he actually took a pitch and then he makes the next pitch for a home run. It was really cool. Uh, and again, and it was kind of like, and you do get this appreciation for how, what an unbelievable <coughs> player that he was to kind of see him unleash the swing. And when he's running around the field, first base for the first home run, someone threw something on the field. It looked like a lemon because you could see one of the Cubs players throwing it out of the way. I mean, you know, people were bring, were throwing stuff at him at that game. It was unbelievable. Then he had footage of Kai Kai Tyler hitting a home run for the Cubs, but he had it running backwards for whatever reason. <laughs> and then he had the called shot, only three pitches to the called shot. So you have the 2-1 pitch that I described where he's doing this. And the, and the interesting part of it about that, you know, Gabby Hartnett was the Cub, Hall of Fame Cubs catcher. And he was always been one of the guys who said that Ruth didn't call his shot because if he would call his shot, I would have definitely had seen it. I'm the catcher, right? Oh, here's something that's interesting. So that 2-1 pitch that goes for a ball, where he's making the it was the pitch had dribbled behind Hartnett. So he's his back is turned. He's retrieving the ball while Ruth is making that gesture. So he never saw that. Maybe he never even saw that gesture, which is kind of an interesting thing. And so then, then you see the next pitch. He takes a, uh, he takes a. Uh, it's not no, this is not continuous action here, you know. So then he takes. You see the next pitch. He probably turned the camera on right when Ruth when Ruth's in the delivery. You don't even see the pitcher; you just see Ruth and the, and the catcher. And and he takes the and then this is when he's doing this. And then again, and then you see the next pitch again. It's not real time again, so I don't know if maybe he did something else. I have no idea. Where he hits the ball for a home run, and then he's you, they show him rounding first, and as he's rounding first. The film cuts to his daughter eating an ice cream cup. <laughs> you want to talk about like a buzzkill? And then, and then he uh, and then he shows then he shows the people actually walking on the field. People, they walked on the field after the game. That's how the people left the ballpark. Was going, you know, and I think that you've seen pictures of that at you know the polo grounds in Ebbets Field. Yankee Stadium, yeah, right. Yeah, so so that was. So that was, I mean, that was really something to see, to see him in the context of the game and then to kind of see, wait a minute, you know, maybe Hartnett had his back turned. He didn't see it, you know, maybe. And this, that second gesture that no, I had never seen before, uh, and in the context of the, the, the big gesture where you see, and I have it in the book, uh, uh, you know, the, where he's doing this, this was not on the pitch right before it. It was on the pitch, you know, a 2-1 pitch. There was another pitch still, two more pitches still to go before he hit the home run. You also say in the book that the uh, root pitcher was not looking at the and, right, so. right, and. And that one pitch, okay, again, when the ball got away and, and, and Ruth is doing this, I, I would think he's gesturing to the dugout. I mean, you know, just because the way he's kind of waving his arm. You know, get your rear ends back in the dugout. Root's, the pitcher, is back. It's also turned. So it's also, you know, Root, the pitcher, who's, I do a whole chapter on him, uh, he was he, who steadfastly denied that Ruth, Ruth ever did anything. Again, he might have missed it because his back was turned. Again, if you want to believe that this gesture was calling the shot. You, are, you have a chapter in there, witnesses, uh, naysayers, and believers, if you just want to speak about Well, again, that. I, I, I kind of say it's like looking at a map of the United States on election night, you know, red states and blue states. <laughs> it's like 50-50, right? Because it was amazing... People who were at the game, uh, fans and players, 
you know, a lot of people believed, and a lot of people, you know, it's almost 50-50, to be honest with you. You know, uh, uh, you know, people believe that he did it. Lefty Gomez uh, believed that uh, Lefty Gomez said that he pointed, but he wasn't pointing to center field. He was pointing to right field. Um, uh, Pat Piper, who was the public address announcer, who was back in, back in those days, was literally right behind the, the plate. He was adamant that Ruth was pointing to center field. Uh, but then you had um, Gabby Hardnett, obviously we talked about, who you know, who said that you know Ruth didn't point. I was there. I would have saw. We kind of know that maybe there was. But uh, even uh, Mark Koenig and other guys from the Cubs and guys on the Yankees, no, he wasn't pointing. You know, he was jabbering. He was gesturing at the Cubs. He didn't. Nobody would do that. And uh, and so that was kind of an interesting, really interesting chapter to see what people said. And a lot of famous people were there. And I have a you know FDR was at the game. Franklin Roosevelt. Throughout the first ball, he was running for president the first time. And he was at the game, and there's a quote from his son James, uh, like 40 years, 50 years later, uh, which says that his father believed that. Oh, James was at the game, too, that they believed that he called his shot. Now, listen, are you going to say, you know, isn't it a better story to say that he, that he called his shot, that, you know, you were at a game where something happened as opposed to trying to knock down the legend? You know, but uh, uh, the interesting part of it was... Uh, what Ruth had to say, I do a whole chapter. One of the great uh, highlights of the book was, uh, amazingly, Babe Ruth's daughter, or his adopted daughter from his second wife, who he adopted, uh, is still alive. She's 97, just turned 97 years old. So I talked to her last year, she's 96. You know, just think about this, think about this. This is the 100th anniversary of Babe Ruth playing his first professional baseball game. So on the 100th anniversary, if you could still you could pick up the phone and still talk to someone who's calling Babe Ruth Daddy. <laughs> now, isn't that unbelievable? You know, and I talked to her, um, and she wasn't at the game, and she was great. And in fact, they're doing a Babe Ruth bobblehead at Wrigley Field next week to commemorate the 100th anniversary of Wrigley Field, and and she's going to be there, and I'm hoping to get together with her. I talked to her on the phone, and she was great. I said, you know, I can't tell you what a thrill it is. Uh, to talk to you, and she's I can't tell you what a thrill it is to talk to you, you know, that I'm still <laughs> here to be able to talk to you. you know? and, uh, and she was terrific, and she, she wasn't at the game, uh, but she uh, but she wasn't at the game, but uh, she had heard that, uh, you know, she'd heard her, her mother and the Cardinal of New York, I'm sorry, it was a famous Spellman, spell, right. Right. who was at the game, you know, they both said that that Daddy called his shot. You know, am I supposed to doubt my mother and a and a, and a cardinal? You know, <laughs> right? So she believed that they called. But Ruth himself, initially, again, we didn't have, you know, we didn't we don't have. It wasn't that post game interview. He was supposedly was interviewed. Someone went to his house after the game, a couple after the series, and uh, and talked to him. And he kind of like, yeah, Ruth, you would look like an idiot if you had. You know, if you hadn't come through there, and he, he kind of went, yeah, 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 I would have. You know, like there was seemed to be like a little bit of him, like, what are you talking about? And supposedly he gave this radio interview, uh, in which, uh, uh, in which uh, he said that uh, that yeah, I would have been crazy. You know, who, who, I would have been crazy. Who, who, who can predict call a shot? You know, and, and he ran with it though. And then, and then, well, okay, so. And well, so many times, you know. So then it became, uh, it kind of become. Well, the, you know, no matter what he said, 
you know, I mean, the story, but then you're not talking social media. You're not talking, well, he gives a radio interview and, you know, it's on Twitter within 15 hashtag seconds. Call right, hashtag call shot. Right, hashtag call shot. I mean, nobody probably heard it, you know, and it really didn't kind of, you know, and again, they weren't hanging in every word. And so the story kind of just took hold, and, and at a certain point it appears like, hey, you know, if they're going to write this up, I'm not going to be the guy to kind of knock it down. And his famous quote, uh, Ford Frick, who was his ghostwriter, later became the commissioner of baseball, who wasn't at the game, said, babe, did you call your shot? And his famous quote, it's in the papers, ain't it? Read the papers. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how he responded to him. But basically, after a while, you've heard the kind of the, uh, him, the sound of him kind of describing it in graphic detail. Again, wrong, saying it was an 0-2 count. Uh, but... Uh, uh, so he, yeah, he took on. You know, I'm not going. Who am I to knock down? If they want to believe it, I'll let them believe it. So again, they kind of added the whole layer of intrigue. Okay, you know, why would he have not necessarily take ownership of it in the first place? You had a question? Indeed. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess. I yeah, we could start in with some questions. Sorry. No, or any, does anybody have a question? Yeah, I, I uh, you go, you go. Um, you mentioned that reporters weren't allowed down. Oh, no, they weren't allowed. They just didn't go down. Or they didn't go down. No, well, you know, I mean, it was like, if you look at the quotes, I mean, the reporter, back then, I mean, they were basic. The reporters were like the big columnists. They were the big celebrities in the newspapers. I mean, because that was the only way you got news. I mean, if you, you know, I mean, radios were, you know, they were still new, you know, Still limited, you know. Still primitive. I mean, uh, for radios and uh, and, pay, and who could afford a radio in those days? And that's how they got their news. And you, it, it, if you just read, if you look at that chapter about the way they wrote, I mean, it's just you know, it's it's very uh, theatrical. I would say, you know, very dramatic. And they all kind of tried to. They all fell over each other to try these use these great moments. You know, you think that you're reading something out of. Uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, Greek mythology almost. You know, and they, that's how they kind of wrote them because that's what the people wanted. They wanted heroes. It wasn't like they wanted, you know, they, they, and and who was the biggest hero of that day? It was Babe Ruth, and you know, and Babe Ruth really. Uh, and I think another thing that's kind of great about that the way, the moment, whether or not you believe it, really, Babe Ruth did not up to that time. This this was the last World Series home run he ever hit. It was the only they never played another World Series after that. He was basically at the end of his career. He was 37 years old. And he almost missed the whole that World Series to begin with because he had some kind of mystery ailment. And in September, uh, where they said it was appendicitis, and some people thought it might have been syphilis or something like that. It was the babe, right? Um, so anyway, but he came back and he played. But you think about it, he never had a game-winning game seven home, you know, winning the World Series home run, or even a game-winning home run in the World Series. He hit three home runs in a World Series game. But he, but you know, this is Babe Ruth. I mean, he, his, you know, you think Willie Mays had the catch. Hank Aaron had breaking Babe Ruth's record, right? You know, these defining. Mo- he never had a defining moment, so it's almost like his career was screaming out for some larger than life moment. I mean, when you ask if, if I ask you what's the defining moment in Babe Ruth's career, if I ask anybody, they're going to point. They're just they're not going to say they're going to point to some imaginary center <laughs> field somewhere because that. So it was almost like his career was demanding something <coughs> like this, and it was great that it happened. I was wondering, did the, the pitching for the Cubs like ever really come out? Yes, yeah. I have a chapter in the book about him. In fact, I got a note that someone sent him in 1965 at the Chicago Baseball Hall Museum 
uh, got a hold of, in which it said, Dear Mr. Root, and I'm sure you got many of these. Um, uh, I understand. Can you tell me what, did Babe Ruth really, basically, can you tell me that what Babe, did Babe Ruth really call his shot at Wrigley Field that day? And it's in handwritten, he didn't even, you know, on the bottom of it, he sent it back. It says, if he had called his shot, I would have knocked him on his head. <laughs> right? And it was like, and, uh, and so, it, you, know, he st- you know, he was a great pitcher. He was the, it, who was the one in his pitcher in Cub history? Everyone would probably say Fergie Jenkins or something like that. It's Charlie Root. Charlie Root had 201 victories for the Cubs. So he was a great pitcher, and yet he always kind of lived in, and he was also known as, a, his nickname was Chinsky. Because he was known for knocking players off the plate, and um, and so uh, so they kind of said, you know, so he was pretty adamant that it didn't happen. Now here's the catch, okay? So you know that I would have knocked him off the plate if he was if he had uh, if he was if he had pointed. Well, we definitely have seen that he did more than enough, regardless whether or not he's pointing. He, his gestures were more than enough to have warranted a pitch, you know, that uh, knocks him on his rear end, as he, or knocked him on his ass, as Root would like to say. So why didn't Root do that? Did he kind of? And one of the guys in the book kind of says Root kind of choked in that situation. He should have knocked him down, regardless. There was all this byplay going on. He would have been more. With, nobody would have blamed him if he would have knocked him on his butt, you know. And again, and Root, there was some speculation that Root was engaging in this in this uh, bantering, which was incredibly stupid since he already gave a three-run homer to the guy, and Ruth, and Ruth hit a ball to the wall in the third inning. He almost, so again, he almost had three homers on that day. So why would you want to get this guy even madder, give him more incentive, and he's already hit one homer and almost had a second. And did, so, uh, did Ruth acknowledge that there was any gesture? Did he say, like... He no, basically he said, yeah, right. No, he didn't acknowledge any gesture. He would have pointed, I would have knocked him. That was what his... And many, he was quoted many. I found, again, kind of looking through all the archives. And here's the thing. He died, he's on his... Um, there was a YouTube video. You guys can, uh, you can look at it. Charlie Root's... If you YouTube, Charlie Root's daughter. There's actually a YouTube video that someone did with Charlie Root's daughter shortly before... He died where he des- she kind of describes the deathbed scene for Charlie Root. And she goes, you know, I'm going to be remembered. I won, I was a great pitcher. I won all these games, and yet I'm remembered for something that didn't happen. Mm. And sure enough, when he died, I, this is the last line in that chapter, the obituary read, the AP obituary read, Charlie Root, who gave up Babe Ruth's called shot home run, died at age 71. So it was the first line in his obituary. So it is a little bit sad. But again... You know, I think there's also this idea that he would have not, everyone would have said, they all said, oh, if he would have pointed, he would have knocked him out of, off the plate. You know, yeah. well, why didn't he knock him off the plate in the first place? There was more than enough to justify him doing something. Well, did these videos on, did Ruth come up, did Ruth come up again against Ruth later in the game? Well, Ruth, Ruth, well, after the back-to-back homer, they mercifully pulled out Ruth. <laughs> now, here's uh, an interesting part of the story, but that's, that brings up, uh, so one of the guys who taunted him was Guy Bush, who was a pitcher yeah. for the Cubs. And he lost the first game, and he was really, uh, he was really uh, uh, very much one of the instigators, if not the instigator. So he's pitching game four, the starting pitcher of game four. Ruth comes up in the first inning, and already, the, I mean, the, the, he, you can tell the guy he's already given up. Like I think he started the game with back-to-back walk and maybe a, a single. So he's got two men on. And the first pitch to Ruth hit him right on the forearm, the bush. 
Bush throws him. So Ruth, uh, Bush did what Ruth didn't do the day before. And actually, and Ruth's going down the line saying, is that all you got? But he actually would have, he actually tagged them pretty good, and there's some question whether or not he would have been able to play the rest of the series because uh, he had a, his arm really swelled up after that game. So Bush, and Bush didn't make it out of the first inning. So Bush kind of was like, uh, you know, and the other interesting part of it, you know, and Bush was one of the guys who thought Ruth actually did call his shot. So we know that famous home run that, that Ruth, uh, I mean, how he finished his career. One of the last games he played, he hit three run, three homers Bush off of Pittsburgh. Bush. Bush gave up two of those home runs. So he, you know, Bush, so even at the end, you know, there was kind of some symmetry there, you know, that, that Ruth got his revenge on Bush, too. YouTube videos of the these videos you saw that were... Well, if they're, you could probably, you, they might, you might see them on YouTube, but they're, they're out there, they're not supposed to be there. The guy was, this guy's very protective. I had to pay, even though he was very nice to me, and he had me in his house and uh, took me out to dinner, and we had a great <laughs> time. He, he, I wanted to use the stills. Can I use the stills? Yes, you'll have, but I'll have to charge you for them. So, I mean, he didn't charge me his normal rate, but he still charged me, and he's got a lawyer, and, uh, and, you know, and, and there's stuff that's on there. I think Deadspin did something. That, you know, he's got a lawyer who's kind of every time these things kind of pop up. You know, uh, you know, hey, you, you're you have. Uh, what about the other? The other one is um, it's ESPN. I don't. You know, I never. I couldn't. I couldn't reconnect with the people who had the other one. But again, it's copyright. ESPN spent a. They they paid a thousand dollars for that one time use in it. Dave Ruth documentary, and they hardly even used it again. They they didn't show the whole. There was more to it. And that's what kind of was like really enlightening to me when I saw the video. But these are the people who took the pictures, right? No, these they're are descendants. They are descendants. descendants yeah, one the one in Louisville was a great grandson, and I think they're like both great grandsons. I mean, you're talking almost eighty years have gone by. Yeah. Well, now eighty-two years. Yeah. Um, you know, just going with the whole video thing. It's just funny if somebody were to call their shot now. We have a HD close-up of right. their pores on their index finger. Um, but it, it's just surprising to me. You know, I think you've sli- slightly answered this with the video talk, but you know, you always see it first. You see that photo of of the, the two fingers where it doesn't really you can't really it's all blurry. And then after the home run, you see him gesture to the the dugout right. going around between first and second. Right. And so. It being a World Series, it's just—it's always been very hard for me to believe that there wasn't some movie camera. And maybe there was, and they—you know—they got destroyed. I mean, right. you know, they didn't archive things the way they well, did. You it, know what I mean? It could be some, some guy just—you know—accidentally threw it out. You know, they—they right. they, they didn't have copies. You know, and they didn't uh, back then. And so it's hard to I don't know what happened. I don't know. And you know, and, and if you see even the newsreel footage, you know, it seems like they're in the—they're up on the roof. In the worst location <laughs> for the ballpark to try to shoot, you know, it's always so far away. Why couldn't they, you know, get uh, closer? But you brought up a good point about how it would have been today, how it would have been dissected, and you know, and we would have eight, you know, eighteen in nineteen different angles of it, and you know, and they, they, they what's going on down to Kenny Rosenthal on the field? You know, what was it, what were they saying? What are they saying? And I think part of the beauty of this whole thing is that we don't that 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 to me is the one of the best. We don't know for sure. Because it would, you know, and there's so, I mean, we'll be talking, it's 82 years later, we'll be talking about this in 182 years, that we don't know for sure. And that's kind of the, one of the joys of this. John Thorne, who I, I talked to in the book, is the MLB historian and written many great books. You know, he said it's not so much whether or not 
he called his shot, it's that we're still talking about. That's the beauty of it. And that's, so it's great that we don't know for sure. And I, people have asked me, did he call his shot? And then they pressed me, you know. Did he, I said, I can't say for sure because I, I don't, you know, I, I tend to believe something happened. But I'm, if you're asking me, do I think he pointed at center field, I'm not going to lie and say, yes, he did, like, you know, because I can't say that for sure. Uh, but I definitely think he was being challenged. And he rose to the challenge in a way no other player really had encountered, especially in the context of a World Series game. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that you don't have a definitive answer, believe me, because before this event, I was actually kind of nervous. It's one of those things that, right. one of the first things you learn about in Little League is, I mean, I called a million ground ball outs in my life. I did, I called. So when you first put together the ideas of this book, was there any apprehension on your part of thinking, I kind of almost don't want to know? No, because I, I, I kind of knew that I wasn't going to be able to find that exact answer. I didn't think that, because I thought if we had found that exact answer, it would have existed. I kind of put together the book thinking, okay, how do we get to this? How did it kind of happen? You know, and 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 and, 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 and the media stuff that's kind of intriguing to me, and then how Hollywood, most people think the perception of the Cobb shot is from these two horrible Babe Ruth movies, <laughs> one with Billy Bendix in 1947, and then they did a contemporary version in 1992 with John Goodman, where you thought, okay, I thought this would have been more nuanced, <laughs> and that was, have you guys seen this movie? you got to see it. It's like the last scene, you know, where I talked about the home runs in Pittsburgh, did you like it? Well, wait, wait, wait. I like the last, baseball. Right. But the last scenes in Pittsburgh, you know, they portray Ruth as being like this guy who could hardly even walk up a step, let alone. And, wait, wait. They, they had him in, this, in, this, in Pittsburgh, they had him using a designated runner for him. What baseball games did they watch where there was a designated runner? I mean, how could you have done this? I mean, you know, come on. I mean, that, that's like an assault on, on everyone, <laughs> anyone who's like baseball. So you're going to tell me William Bendix didn't hit a ball that killed the kid's I, dog? Right, right. <laughs> the William Bendix one, they tied the call China into little Johnny hitting one for little Johnny. And, you see, and, they, and that cuts to, you know, so they, to when they're talking during their bath, they're cutting to little Johnny on the deathbed, you know, it's like this. And then he hits the home run, and he's like smiling. All of a sudden, the great mirror. Like, you know, they, I mean, it was just ridiculous. But I thought the 90 version, I thought was a little, dis- I thought that would be a little it's more bad. nuanced. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah. It was great. And even John Goodman kind of, John Goodman even said in that movie that he kind of, it's like one of those dreams you, you know, he, he felt like that movie was like one of those dreams you wake up and you don't have any clothes on. You know, <laughs> you know you, Well, they had him playing him as a kid, right. too. Yeah. I mean, that was just yeah, right. Uh, in terms of the reporters, I was just wondering uh, if you knew when that changed in terms of when they started. Well, it happened. happened right, it happened here in, in New York. Uh, the, uh, the Dick Young, who was one of the first guys who actually started going down to the to the, you know he was one of the first guys who kind of started in the fifties, late fifties, in the sixties. Uh, well, actually, even a little predates that. You know, they kind of hey, you know, I want to hear what these guys have to say. Okay. So there was a group of guys, you know, Dick Young, and then. Um, uh, there was a group of guys who were kind of called the Chipmunks. If you watch the '61 movie that Billy Crystal did, which was a great, that was a great oh, movie. Uh, you know, they talk about those guys. You know, that was really like the first time when they're kind of berating Roger Maris that they really kind of, you know, that, that these guys really had this attention on almost a daily, you know, on a daily basis. And they called them the Chipmunks because they were always chattering in the press box. <laughs> it's not really about the. Called shot. It's about Babe. I don't know whether you 
somebody that's heard that at prior clubhouse. I bought a Bruce Murray, brought the Bruce Murray picture of his taken right before his last game. The one, the, the one, the one in his 1935. It's the only photo that exists from his last game. Oh, I didn't know. We have it here. Okay. Unfortunately, oh, it's put away at the moment. Oh, okay. It's well, a I'll very have to come picture, and he's kind of sure. very pensive. And and when the picture was taken, they didn't know it was going to be his last game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and apparently, at the time, uh, the you know, some of the some of the outfielders had signed over, or some of the pitchers, I'm sorry, had signed a petition. You know that they wouldn't pitch if he was playing in the outfield because he was yeah. he was so bad. I just thought maybe if you had well, I do. Okay, here's the context. Well, well, you know, he went and I do it. You know, I, and I kind of did a couple chapters leading up to the moment of the called shot where I did the I start uh, the year 19 after he hit the, his, his his previous uh, World Series appearance was in 28. So I kind of go take the story from there. And it kind of set in the background, and he obviously he wanted to manage, and it really you know, and he when uh, Miller Huggins died abruptly in 1929, I mean he thought he should have been the manager. Um, they hired a guy named Bob Shockey. I think he only lasted one or two years. Like, you know, he solicited him then; he got turned down, and then he solicited. You know, Bob Shockey was was bad, and again he went to him because all these back then all these guys were Ty Cobb and Chris Speaker; they were all player managers. And he even notes in his autobiography that, uh, that that the senators made Joe Cronin a manager at 26 years old, and he said, you know, and and I wasn't. And he, he notes that something to the effect that, and I wasn't experienced enough. You know, they made a guy who's 26 years old, but they wouldn't let me be manager. Really? So he went to well, he went to Boston thinking. The only reason why he went to Boston was thinking that he was going to be manager. Mm-hmm. He was going to get a chance to manage that team, and they kind of reneged. And when he realized they they wasn't going to happen, that's when he. He quit because he was going to retire after 34. So he kind of played, and they realized he was just being used for box office, that they had no intention of. And it really is kind of a shame. Robert Creamer kind of writes that, uh, you know, that uh, in, in, the, in the autobiography, in the biography, the great biography that he did, that, you know, I mean, there's a, the idea that Ruth couldn't control himself wasn't, you know, you know, was the reason that commonly given. How are you going to, you can't manage yourself, the owner said, how are you going to manage other players? Well, all these guys, he said, a lot of these guys were alcoholics and they weren't saints themselves. Why didn't they let him be a manager? It really was kind of a crime. That That's really what he really, it was a huge, huge, huge disappointment for him. He was about to be the Dodger manager. Yeah, how did he end up in Brooklyn? He was going to be a coach, thinking he might be a manager. And they, they, they kind of, just, again, they just trotted him out there because his presence just, you know, he was being used. Yeah, he batting practice. That's really what he was Yeah, and he took occasional batting practice. He was still only a few years removed. Well, it wouldn't have involved Ruth, but was there any carryover from this in 1938 when the Yankees played the Cubs? I don't think so. I don't know. I don't, yeah, I didn't get into that. I don't think so. And again, that the Yankees killed him in four games. Uh, so uh, the Cubs actually... You know, I'm from Chicago, and uh, you know the Cubs played net from 1929 as bad as they were. You know, the history they played from 1929 to 38, they played in four World Series. They were a dominant team of that era, but they kept running into the Yankees. You know, and the Browns and the, the Yankees. No, no, they ran into Philadelphia, and then they, I think Detroit beat them. Detroit, 35. Oh, yeah. What was 45? 45 was Detroit too. Detroit. Oh, Detroit. Yeah, the Cubs the had. Browns won 44. Yeah. 
There were 14, yes. in that game, game three, there were 14 Hall of Fame people people in the Hall of Fame on the field, in that ballpark that day, including the Yankees owner and Joe McCarthy was the manager. So it was, uh, and Bill Clem was one of the umpires. So it's a pretty a pretty amazing assemblage of people who were at that game Didn't that day. Yankees get McCarthy from the club? Not, right. Not, yes. not Right. They didn't trade. And, 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 Ruth, and, and Ruth did not have a close relationship with them because he resented the fact that he wasn't named manager. I also have just a general question about the bait. Um, consider it a low and away pitch. Yeah. Um, as you know, I mean, such a legendary hitter. I'm sure he liked the ball anywhere, you know, but uh, do you like it down? Well, he, here's that, you know, and I did a, here's another thing. I don't know if this video still exists, because I think the guy who posted it had to take it down. There was a side view of Ruth. Um, almost, that was probably the best video that I've seen of him actually where they, these hitting coaches broke down his swing. If you do like a YouTube and do Babe Ruth's swing, and I talked to one of the guys. I don't know why if the video is still there, but it's a, it is amazing to see his swing uh, in kind of slow motion, like you would see it today, like they would do it. That's the only thing that I've seen. And I wrote about, I wrote did a YouTube, I did the kind of a Babe on YouTube chapter because I found a bunch of these videos. But I wanted to talk about his swing. And I had to call up this hitting coach. Tell me about his swing. And, and the thing that really struck this guy that you don't, you know, you have this kind of comic book character, Babe Ruth, kind of being heavy and overweight, and you don't realize what an incredible athlete he was. The guy in 1931, you know, we know all know that he was a pitcher. He started as a pitcher and probably would have been a Hall of Fame pitcher if he hadn't become. But so he's ten, 10 years removed from pitching a game, and it's late in the season. The Yankees are out of the pennant race. He pitched a nine-inning complete game and won in 1931, ten years after his last game. And so it just shows you what an unbelievable athlete. And I was saying, so we broke down the swing. And what really, I'm not going to go into it, but the thing that really struck me was the guy said, Ruth had unbelievable upper body, must have unbelievable upper body flexibility, especially his shoulders, because you can see he holds the bat back so long while he's already moving his weight forward, transferring the weight, that he's able not only to square up the ball, but you know, also he's throwing up this unbelievable. And he's a big, strong man to begin with. But this, un, but the way he was able to hold it back, you know, basically when he does pull the bat through the zone, it's just it's whipping through there like nobody else had bat speed. Like a forty, yeah. He used it, you know, forty. I don't know if he was using that, that as heavy a bat in thirty-seven, I mean, thirty-two. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it was a huge. I mean, he was a man. He was. Strong, but in order, but you don't think of Babe Ruth as being flexible. And this guy said, in order to hold it, you know, because he's already transferred his weight forward, and he still has the hands back. And he said, it was the best position he's seen any player ever ever achieve in the swing. And so again, just I would have given anything to have seen him play. <laughs> Yeah, and he said he was able, even if he was off on the pitch, and I, this is kind of getting baseballish, uh, technical, but even if he was off, if even if he missed, he still was able to, his, his zone of missing, I suppose, was twice as big as anyone else's because of the way he was able. So even if he was not necessarily locked in on a pitch, he still was able to hit the ball pretty hard just because of the way of his. Uh, of his mechanics. We're going to continue with the discussion, but we just have to say farewell to the podcast audience because of time constraints. So, again, the, this fantastic book, as you can tell by this fascinating discussion, 
Babe Ruth's Called Shot, The Myth and Mystery of Baseball's Greatest Home Run by Ed Sherman, published by Lions Press. Thank you so much. Ed.